0: Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. We're glad that you're with us. If you're new, or if you've been here for a very long time, or somewhere in between, really excited to be able to be together today, this morning. Thank you, Sean, for that announcement and for helping make this happen, and, and, and certainly encourage and commend uh, those two Wednesdays uh, to you, to our church family, uh, to be a part of and to learn from and glean from. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Job chapter 30. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 23 to get a glimpse of how Job is feeling. We considered uh, a number of things over this the series and the series through Job. And last week we, were, we realized that Job was done listening to his three friends tell him stuff that wasn't all that helpful. And he commended some certain things about God. And we, we, we were certainly feeling like we were on a positive swing upward, at least with Job. And now uh, we find uh, Job in a different place. And that's the nature of suffering. There are days in which we feel like we're through it. And there are days in which we feel we have been wrung through. So let's pick up in Job chapter 30, verse 16 through 23. Job speaking. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, for my, ga- my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire. And I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death. And to the house appointed for all living. Let's pray. As we come to this passage, we ask... Uh, This question just sits there, is there grace for sufferers? So as we consider it together this morning, we pray that you would answer that for us. That you would show us and encourage us. And would you be gracious to us now, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Fatigue is a feeling of constant exhaustion, burnout, or lack of energy. It can have a combination of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual Symptoms such as chronic tiredness, sleepiness or lack of energy, headache, dizziness, sore or aching muscles, muscle weakness, slowed reflexes and responses, impaired decision-making and judgment, moodiness such as irritability, impaired hand-to-eye coordination, appetite loss, reduced immune and system function, blurry vision, short-term memory problems, poor concentration, hallucinations, and low motivation. Causes of fatigue can be medical, lifestyle, workplace, and psychologically related. More like some sort of combination of all of those things. Some fatigue can take root due to 30 plus chapters of friends arguing over the cause and confusion of suffering. Fatigue can be a slow drip, low grade issue that can reach an all of a sudden tipping point of more significant symptoms some of which could be unsafe for self or others. Changes would need to be made to care for the issue of fatigue. Most of us in here have experienced fatigue in some measure in our lives. We know the feels. Perhaps it's the life stage with a newborn, or it's a deadline week for a school or work project, or it's the struggle with chronic pain. Some fatigue is short-term, And circumstantial, other fatigue is something much more. Regardless, fatigue leads to impaired judgment. In our tiredness, we can make mistakes. Suffering brings about a similar impaired judgment. An an impaired judgment of self, of the world around, and of even God over it all. The book of Job is a long look into the fatigue of suffering, into the impaired judgment suffering brings. And it's hard to not think, as we read Job, is there any relief for such a fatigue? Is there any grace for such sufferers? When we look at the ongoing reality of suffering. We're nearing the end of the book. This is our last big section of Scripture we're considering. Um, and, as we, and then we will slow down and consider God's response to Job, his friends, and the conclusion of the story. As we consider this last big section, we're going to read Job's last words on the matter. We're going to be introduced to a new friend. And then we're going to try to take all that in and all that we've been considering and, and seek to answer the question, is there grace for sufferers? Because suffering takes us beyond our capacities, beyond what we can handle, we have only one thing left to do, and that is to look to the God of all grace. But we do with the tinging question, is there grace for me? Is there grace for sufferers? So as we consider that, and as we consider a big um, chunk of Scripture, chapters um, 32 through 37 and so forth, we're going to be looking at our weariness with our suffering, Our confusion with God's sovereignty and our response to sufferers. So, we're heading. So, first, our weariness with our suffering. As we consider Job's last words in Job chapter 29 through 31, we see weariness leads to a longing. There's longing that comes out of this weariness. In Job chapter 29, we see that we, like Job, long for what was. In his weariness with his suffering, Job longs for what he once had and Job chapter 29 verses 1 through 5, we see that longing. Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and when my children were all around me. Job is longing for what was. He remembers friendship with God and the joy of many blessings in life. He longingly looks back to the good old days. And nostalgia is a powerful pull. And when we get pulled in with that nostalgic longing look back, we obscure the the hard and we only see the good. We long for the good aspects of those days and we overlook some of the more difficult parts. In many ways, it's totally understandable why Job longs for what was, but that will do nothing for his what is and it will not help him through his what could be. In Job chapter 30, we find that he is longing or lamenting over what is. So, He looks back and he wishes he had that. and Now he looks in his present and he just laments over it. He he cries out over the ongoing effects of his suffering. In Job 30 verses 26 through 31 he says this, But when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil, and never still days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. I'm not sure, but he is feeling that. Suffering makes us think crazy things, so... My skin turns black and falls from me and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning, my pipe to the voice of those who weep. He's lamenting, he's broken over his current suffering. Job is lamenting this present situation. There were clear physical and mental and emotional and spiritual effects and fatigue from such suffering. He's languishing, folks. He's lamenting with evocative and emotive words and word pictures. He's conveying that he is broken. He's done. He's fatigued with this suffering. And what we see here is the increasing impaired judgment that is brought on by the fatigue of suffering, the weariness of suffering. And so in Job 29, we see him longing for what, Uh, was, and in Job 30, we see him lamenting over what is, and in Job 31, we see him longing for what could be. In his longing for what could be, Job makes a final plea for his case before God. With his argument with his friends, he was saying, no, I didn't do anything to cause this, and I want to have a case before God to prove it. In Job 31, verses 5 and eight through 8, he says, if I have... Walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. Let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. And if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. He's saying, listen, if I did though, if I caused this, let's figure it out. Let's know. Let's make it out. I don't, I didn't, but let's bring it all out. I didn't cause this. And then in verse 35 of Job 31, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. So Job is wanting a case before God. And and as you read through the rest of Job 31 and and his other responses earlier in the book, you see that in the angst and the weariness of his suffering in the fatigue that it brings on, he's kind of created a bit of a false dilemma. He says, one of us, me, Job, and God are wrong. He's he's been surrounded by friends who have said, no, it's you. And he's still wrestling with this, making sense of the why. And so what he has done and created is that if God stays silent on the issue and I don't get a hearing before him, then I'm innocent and God has unfairly allowed this to happen. Have you ever felt so worn out by a situation or circumstance in your life that you're like, God, if you really were going to do something about it, you would have by now and you haven't. And so I just think that you've been very unfair. It's rhetorical because I think most of us probably have felt something like that. That in the fatigue of suffering some sort of situation or circumstance in our life, we've gone about and misunderstood God and we've, we've thought he's acted unfairly. Now, I know that there are a variety of kinds of suffering and, and that might be hard to hear because, there's hard to make, because it's hard to make sense of the why. But here in Job, we find that he's sort of whittling it all down to, so if God stays silent, then I'm innocent and he's unfairly allowed this to happen. Or, second way, the other inverse of that is God's, if God speaks, then I will be proved wrong, that I'm not innocent. Now, that's kind of where Job is at. He's fatigued, he's longing, he's wearied, he's wrestling, he can't answer the wise. He's an understandable mess, really. So when God does show up, and He does, and we'll get to it, He He doesn't deal with this false dilemma; He deals with what Job really needs. So anyway, at this point, Job is fatigued; he's wearied; he's longing for, uh, or he's longing with the sort of impaired judgment that comes from suffering. And I don't say that as a criticism of Job. And as we see, when God does show up and speak, He doesn't criticize Job necessarily for that; He doesn't condemn Job. Job's essential, essential point that he's been saying is that God isn't fair. It's wrong, but it's understandable how he arrived at those words when we consider the weariness of suffering and the effects of fatigue gripping our whole persons. We shouldn't read Job and, and judge him in the midst of his fatigue. Weariness can lead to longing, and longing can be irrational. Fatigue makes us crazy, but you're not crazy to be fatigued. So it leads us with a dilemma a little bit. Our weariness with our suffering leads us to then confusion with God's sovereignty. Confusion with God's sovereignty. And that's where we see next with the introduction of of a new friend, a fourth friend. His name is Elihu. And as we consider his words, um, we find that confusion over something can lead to projecting. We can project onto our suffering and we can project onto God's sovereignty. So as a new friend enters the chat in verses chapters 32 through 37, let's take a moment to consider what it is that he says. Elihu is a younger man than the three previous friends, and as custom, he waited to speak. In Job 32, 1 through 5 We find these words from Elihu. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that the three, that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So some things that we get from this Elihu. He was younger, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but he burned with anger. Maybe the four times it was mentioned in a short amount of sentences. But he was younger and he burned with anger. He burned with anger over the whole thing. But he also promised to solve the issue. He promised to bring about a new perspective in these three friends. And he, he was saying that, I, I'm going to get this figured out. All right. Uh, in Job 32, verse 14, Elihu speak, says, He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. So he's speaking to the three friends. And he says, I will not answer Job according to your speeches, according to your perspective and your approach. So I'm going to bring something new. And then in chapter 33, 1 through 7, he says this to Job. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. So he's saying, I'm coming to you with uprightness and sincerity. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. So he is trying to say, I'm going to bring a different word than your friends. And, and, and I'm not going to bring a heavy one. He's telling Job he's got it figured out that he's going to solve the case. But he's a younger man. And it leads us into considering, is Elihu a, are we to take it positively or negatively? Are we to see Elihu's response as something that is more like God's response in the next few chapters? Or is Elihu's response just as bad as his three friends? Well, there's a few things to factor in. One is like we see that he is a younger person. Think about ourselves. When we were teenagers, we lacked sense. We wore t-shirts and shorts and flip-flops when it's 28 degrees outside. Then when we're in our 20s, we think we've hacked life and figured it all out. And we're happy to let everyone else know. When we're in our 30s, we're way too busy and tired to think about how much we know or don't know. Because what is a life again? And then when we hit 40s, we realize we don't know that much, that it's silly to act like you do, and that there's a whole lot of peace in letting all that go. Now, that's as far as I can go with that. So if you want to know what it's like beyond the 40s, you're going to have to find one of our dear saints um, and take them to lunch and ask. But, But the real question in the midst of all of this is, does Elihu succeed? I mean, it's a drama. It's a poetic drama playing out. Is Elihu bringing to Job what he really needs? And there are two ways to take it, positively or negatively. A positive interpretation of Elihu goes like this. Elihu is speaking truth to Job in preparation for when God arrives. And what Elihu does, because he does confront Job, he confronts Job over how he is suffering, not why he is suffering. Job's free three friends were confronting him over why he is suffering, and he's saying it's Job's fault. And as you read Elihu, you positive interpretation sees him say, no, it's not so much the why, but it's how you are suffering that's off. That Job needs to repent over his sinful responses to suffering, not over any sin that caused his suffering. <clears throat> Job's three friends said it was all Job's fault. Elihu is saying how you're handling your suffering needs to hear some hard truths. So that's the general approach to the positive interpretation of Elihu. Because the next main speaker in the story of Job here is going to be God. So Elihu might be preparing Job to receive from the Lord. Negative interpretation sees it differently. Elihu promises a new perspective but fails to deliver and essentially says the same things as Job's three friends that elihu still reaches a you reap what you sow conclusion that suffering is punishment is a reverberating note in elihu's words that don't seem all that new to his to job's three friends i tend to side with the negative interpretation but i will say to the positive view i agree that God often used unexpected things to bring about his good purposes. That he will use that which is young to to shame that which is wise or older. That he will use an invert of, of what to expect to bring about his purposes. God uses irony a lot in the word. So I do see that as a possib- possibility. And I do agree that Elihu's words make us anticipate God's words on the matter. But, when I come back to where we started with Elihu, youth plus burning with anger doesn't typically end up in that positive place. There are two types of burning with anger in the Bible. God's burning with anger and people's burning with anger. God burns with anger sovereignly and sinlessly. God's anger over something is perfectly righteous in every way. People are especially warned in God's word of the dangerous, slippery slope of anger. And this is especially true in wisdom literature and especially doubly true in instruction given to those who are younger. Wisdom literature includes Proverbs and Psalms. Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Job. In fact, Proverbs 14.20 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And many saw you could say, hey, well, Elihu held that anger for a while until it was his turn to speak. But yet when we find in wisdom literature a lot of warnings to all of us about the dangerous slippery slope of anger and especially focused on those who are younger. And now Elihu also says some things that caused me to hit the pause button on taking him totally positive in anticipation of God. One thing is, he says that God is silent because no one really prays. Job 35, verses 9 through 11. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the Almighty. But none says, where is God my maker? who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. And, that, and then he goes on to say, when we do pray, we do so with bad motives. In the next two verses of Job 35, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. There are, like I said, there are a couple of ways to take Elihu. And why, a third reason why I feel that it is more of a negative interpretation rather than a positive is that God's words on the matter are what we need most. And so that leads us to to wrestle with the things that we've been considering this morning. Because of our weary induced confusion with God's sovereignty, it is crucial we carefully consider what we need from God and each other. And so let's consider the response to suffering, response to sufferers. And what I want to say is that grace leads to grace. First, God's response to sufferers. While we haven't hit the portion of Job where God responds directly, we do know through Scripture what God has revealed about his character and his compassion, even if it seems far from our present circumstances. Psalm 147, verse 3 says, He, God, heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. We aren't necessarily told when or how God does it, just that God does it. Ezekiel 34, verse 16 says, "God speaking. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. We are not necessarily told when or how God will do this, just that God will do this. 1 Peter 5.10, a, Ter- a New Testament sort of interpretation to how we handle suffering. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is aware of your reality, your circumstances, your suffering. And this God is the God of all grace, including grace for you. Yes, you who are a sufferer. And God has called you into his forever presence with him through Jesus Christ. And because of all that Christ has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection, God Himself will bind up your wounds by restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you. Yes, in these days, yes, but in one great and ultimate day. We'll consider God's response to Job in the coming weeks as we feel the tension of what comes about from the weariness of suffering and our confusion over God's sovereignty. We have to tell ourselves the things that are true about his character. And we see that God is gracious. And that grace leads to grace. And is to inform our response to sufferers. We have now hit the end of everyone talking to Job that's not God. Three friends, and then this fourth friend who showed up here at the very end. And, and while there were many times in which they said very true things about God, if you remember, when we think from a human wisdom perspective, it fails to deliver. And misunderstandings of God applied painfully by each other to each other. Make the suffering hurt more. And so I've been saving sort of more specific words to how we help each other suffer well. Until now, until we got to the end of all the friends. So what is our response to sufferers? What is our response to sufferers? There will come a time, if it hasn't already happened, there will come a time when you will sit with each other while one of you is suffering. What do you do in those moments and in those seasons? So let's consider a couple of important rehearsal questions for ourselves. I mean, generally, if you just took the, the general like, approach of do the opposite of Job's friends, then you're on, well on your way. What would Job's friends do? And then you know do the 180 of that. But, To be a little bit more strategic and a little more specific, let's ask ask yourself a couple of questions. First question How would knowing God's response to sufferers inform your heart for your friend who is suffering? If God has grace for the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, how will that inform you in your approach to your friends? One, you're not going to outgrace God. But your approach should be that that is like God's. So, question one. How would knowing God's response to sufferers inform your heart for your friend who is suffering? Second question is, how would knowing that there is a unique weariness and confusion that comes from this sort of suffering inform your posture towards your friend who is suffering? Or, how would knowing that there is tremendous fatigue and your friend and form your posture to them while they are suffering. Both of those questions are helpful rehearsals to keep in mind when you're sitting with someone who is suffering a Job-like ordeal. And hopefully then it will lead you to see that there is grace that leads to grace. There are a few things that I would recommend to your thoughts as we have been considering in Job One is positively, we want to be tangibly present regularly. How do we respond to sufferers? Be tangibly present regularly. Each word is important. Tangible can mean many different things to many different people. Tangible could mean physical proximity. Tangible could mean um, notes of encouragement. Tangible could be a lot of things to a lot of different people. But be present. Don't withdraw. Don't withdraw from, from each other when suffering. Suffering all, already inherently provokes feeling alone and isolated. So don't withdraw from suffering. So tangible, present regularly. Not just when it's convenient for you. One who is experiencing this kind of suffering doesn't have hours. I'm going to suffer between 8 and 4 today. If you can meet me anytime in that period of time, that would be great. Suffering knows no hours. It's 24-7. So be ready to be present regularly. Be tangibly present. Present regularly. What other kind of grace that leads to grace things can we think of? Well, negative statement is don't blame your friend for their suffering. Don't blame your friend for their suffering. I think if there was anything we would learn from Job, it would be not to go about blaming your friend for their suffering. There are certainly different kinds of suffering. Some suffering we've walked ourselves into with our own sinful decision-making and so forth. So that's not the kind of suffering we're talking about here. We're talking about a Job-like ordeal. The kind of suffering that doesn't make any sense. Don't blame your friend for their suffering. Instead, express your grief over their suffering. A simple, I'm so sorry, period, can be more helpful than you realize. Nothing else after the period no comma, semicolon, ellipsis, but, well, actually, you know, none of that. Just, I'm so sorry. Let's not blame or make our friends who are suffering feel that they are the cause. Thirdly, negative statement again, don't give a theological lecture. Don't give a theological lecture. Don't lecture your friend about their suffering, its situations, God's sovereignty, and so forth. Don't presume you know the lesson God wants to teach either. I particularly like what Eric Ortland said along this line. He said, if your friend doesn't respond as well as you would like or does not respond at all, it may be because he or she is simply unable to. There's a fatigue that hits and no lecture is going to give you strength. (laughs) Nobody wants a lecture ever. (laughs) Nobody wants a lecture when they're suffering. Instead, just listen. Be comfortable with sitting in silence with your friend. Fourthly, and a third negative, and I'm going to sound scandalous. Don't go to Romans 8.28. Let me refresh you eight, romans eight twenty eight is a treasure. It is a jewel of a verse and a, an incredible jewel of a chapter. it really is, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose it 's remarkable, an incredible truth and an incredible chapter, but note where it is in the chapter it 's toward the end. Go back and look in Romans eight before. Romans 8:28. And you're going to find all kind of groaning. Creation is groaning, people are groaning, the Holy Spirit is groaning, why? Because things are not as they should be. And there's a lot of theological work that Paul does from the beginning of Romans 8 to Romans 8:28. There's a lot of life and and God's presence and work in our hearts that lead us to 8:28. Instead, trust that your regular faithfulness to your friend can be used by God as an extension of his grace. Knowing that God will lead your friend who is suffering to Romans 8.28 in his time and not yours. God will lead his people to the sweetness of that verse when it is time. Be regularly present in your friend's life. You will be an extension of of that. And then lastly and positively, as we consider the fatigue that is brought on by suffering, the confusion that it can bring and the impairing of our judgment, do say something like this. I don't know when and I don't know how God will bind up your wounds. But I will wait with you until he does. How do we respond to friends, to each other when we're suffering? We want to follow in the same direction of God's grace to us. And we want to follow that. For those who are suffering, words like these tangibly uh, present in their lives will mean more than you could possibly know. Perhaps you heard something like that once when you were in a dark season in your life. And it wasn't overly profound, but it was faithfully present. In its simplicity, it met your heart in where you were in that moment. And it buoyed you. It really did. Think back in those moments. Be that to each other in the moments of suffering in the days ahead. Job teaches us a very powerful lesson of how to not be a friend. And the inverse then is a challenge for us to be grace-filled sufferers together. So let us take from the book of Job in this lengthy interaction among these friends some certain realities. There is certainly a weariness from suffering that leads to confusion with God's sovereignty. It's just going to happen. Beyond the storm clouds of that suffering, there is a God who heals the brokenhearted and does bind up their wounds. And the grace we receive from that God is to fuel the grace we give to each other when we walk through Job-like ordeals. And we will. So may may we... T- Answer the question we started with, is there grace for sufferers? And the answer is yes, it is found by God. And by God's grace, it can be experienced with each other. Let's take that to heart and let's ask God for such grace now. God, we ask that you would do that for us and in us and through us. You would indeed draw near to the brokenhearted, that you would bind up our wounds. There are some in this room or with us online in our church family that have long suffered, many in silence, others just in chronic debilitating pain or loss or hurts. And so, God, I do pray that you would be with us this morning in a a way that would bring about a sense of your drawing near, restoring and binding up grace. And as we reflect upon the kind of grace that we have received from you, God, would it guard our hearts from judgmentalism uh, with each other, especially in our moments of suffering. And may the grace we receive from you be the fuel to give grace to each other. God, we do not know when and we do not know how, but we do know that you will heal the brokenhearted and that you will bind up their wounds. God, may that encourage us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.